It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling ideas and talks from the Aspen Institute. In 1987, the book Cultural Literacy sparked a national debate about American identity. It laid out 5,000 historical and cultural references, idioms, and common slogans that, according to the book, every American should know. A sort of insider's vocabulary that enables you to enter the civic mainstream. The book was published at the start of the culture wars, and author Edie Hirsch was celebrated by some and attacked as Eurocentric and sexist by others. It initiated a powerful conversation about common fluency in American life. Hirsch describes the science behind the book. To communicate in the public sphere, you have to have a lot of relevant knowledge uh, that isn't in the communicative act itself, in the words themselves. You can't understand it and you can't talk and listen to other people unless you have that background knowledge. Thirty years later, the concept of what every American should know is being revived by the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. They're calling it We Ask. Program director Eric Liu argues the U.S. needs such common knowledge more than ever because of giant demographic and social shifts. But a 21st century sense of cultural literacy must be radically more inclusive reflecting the diversity of people who have shaped the country's culture and coming not just from a few experts, but from everyone. He's working to build a new list with crowdsourced input. Lou is doing a series of interviews with new American thinkers, and in the coming months, we'll feature them here on the podcast. Today, we'll hear from immigration rights activist Jose Antonio Vargas about what he thinks should be included in a new list. We'll also talk to author Edie Hirsch about his book, Cultural Literacy. But first, Lou sits down with Princeton professor Anne-Marie Slaughter. She's also president of New America. In 2012, Slaughter penned the article, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, about career challenges for professional women with children. Here's the conversation between Slaughter and Lou. What does cultural literacy mean to you in the context of an emerging, demographically changing country right now? Cultural literacy is a currency. Uh, uh, it's a currency of power. Uh, it is a glue that you know sort of creates identity. But it's a way that people establish a common set of understandings. That's why I say it's a kind of power. Mm-hmm. Where you know, if I make a reference, say to the almighty dollar or to um, the Rough Riders or the various things in American history and American culture. And if you don't understand me, you're an outsider. One way I think to understand it, I'm the mother of two teenage sons. Um, they are culturally literate in hip-hop. <laughs> I am not. This is a, I am constantly on the outside of their conversation. That's a great uh, way to think about it. And, uh, you know, this idea of boundary drawing It, of course, is happening every day in every circle, but in the context of a nation, and particularly this nation, how we draw not our uh, legal territorial boundaries, but these softer, fuzzier, and more uh, dynamic and ever-changing cultural boundaries is, of course, incredibly uh, contested. Uh, Tell us a little bit about New America and about the work you do and how it is at New America that you try to explore these questions Our mission is renewing American politics, prosperity, and purpose in the digital age. 
And what we really are about are the kind of big ideas that will help us solve public problems. And one of those big ideas is the way in which we are renewing ourselves as a country demographically. Uh, And, you know, Eric, in your own writings, I quote you all the time uh, where you say, you know, being American is slowly, achingly uh, being decoupled uh, from being white. Uh, and I think that's so important. When 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 I look at the people in Washington D.C. and even the people in my, in New America, the organization, we are not representative of the American people. In other words, the people who are making policy proposals for how to reform education or how to do, uh, have better foreign policy or how to combat poverty, those people are are reflecting a, a smaller and smaller portion of upper-middle-class white America. Hmm. When it, whereas when I go out to the cities across the country, I see this, you know, I see, I see the Force Awakens. I see the new Star Wars, mm-hmm. you know, kind of diversity. And so one of the things we think about a lot is how do you involve the people of America in the policymaking of America. And, you know, the the corollary to that question is how do you involve the people of America in conversations about the identity uh, of America? And you've written a lot. Uh, I mean, you are a one-woman embodiment of <laughs> of cultural literacy because you are fluent in the um, in the vocabularies of a lot of different domains, whether it's uh, the realm of foreign policy and national security, the realm of international law uh, and technology, uh, the realm of thinking about men and women at work mm. and work and family. Um, you've written uh, famously in, uh, about all these issues, but in all your writings, you talk a lot about networks. Uh, that yes. We live in this age where it's less and less about top-down institutions conveying their ideas or culture to members of those institutions, and it's much more about uh, more flattened horizontal networks uh, whether professional or identity-based or otherwise, as the transmitters of uh, of knowledge. In this kind of era, across all the domains of work that you've been interested in, how do you think networks can be deployed to create a more inclusive, capacious uh, idea of American identity? You know, a network is a linked set of people, linked generally through an affinity. Uh, You could have a, you know, a sports network or through relationships. Uh, And the, the power of a network is exactly that it's flat. There is no hierarchy. Um, they're the people at the center are more connected than the people who on the further reaches of the network. But everybody is is over ultimately connected to everybody else. And what that says is that power comes with others rather than over others. Mm. Right, So a hierarchy, if you think of a ladder, the people at the top have power over the people at the bottom. But in a network, your power comes from being able to act together with others in the network. So power with rather than power over. And power with then is plugs directly into the idea of diversity. Because if your power depends on the others in your network, then the idea that you as a country have every color under the sun, you have old and young, you have rich and poor, you have uh, different uh, genders, sexual orientation, that all of that, each person 
adds something to that broader collective power. It's a it's a much more open and embracing notion of what power is than the idea that it's those few people who manage to get to the top uh, and exercise power over everybody else below them. You know, you, you've written most recently a book called Unfinished Business uh, <laughs> about uh, work and gender roles and expectations that, uh, uh, as you famously put it in a piece for The Atlantic, uh, that, uh, you know, contrary to, to a lot of myths out there, women still cannot have it all. And I guess one of the things that if you just think about this question of cultural literacy, having command of vocabulary and lingo and background knowledge that confers access and some power, if you just think about that topic um, in the specific context of corporate workplaces, of workplaces in general, uh, where uh, there is gender imbalance in opportunity, what are some instances of ways in which the networks that exist today uh, of power and inclusion use a language about work and success that ends up working to the detriment of, say, women or perhaps people of color of, of, of both genders? Well, I would say it, it works to the exclusion or the detriment of caregivers. Mm. Uh, and caregivers are still more women than men, so that's going to disproportionately affect men. But But our entire definition of success in our society uh, is tied to the workplace, and it is tied to how much money you earn in that workplace. So the first question an American asks another question, another American is, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if your answer is, I take care of my aging mother, or I take care of my children, uh, or I take care of my ill spouse, um, you are very low on the social hierarchy. Uh, and the, and so if you can't answer, speaking of cultural literacy, in a way that says, I do this for money, and here is my position, uh, you are immediately on the periphery uh, of our society. And thinking about you know, real, you know, just just how we talk to each other. You know, in Europe, if you say, what do you do, people think you're really boring because <laughs> it means you can only talk about work. So imagine if the way we engaged each other was, what are you passionate about? Or what, is your, what are your hobbies? Or what did you do last weekend? Uh, or tell me about your family. You know, any number of things that would suggest that there is much more to life than work and much more to success and uh, well-being than where you are in a corporate hierarchy. You raise a, a deeper question that when we uh, think about notions of, again, quote, what every American should know, it turns out so much of the common language that we have is material. Uh, you you <laughs> mentioned the almighty dollar and, um, <laughs> you know, market language uh, suffuses uh, American vocabulary and American metaphor. Do you think it's possible? And what are the ways, if so, that we actually accelerate changing our values in this country by changing the kinds of language we value? Instead of talking about, you know, time is money uh, or the almighty dollar, talking about uh, new catchphrases and new language that really valorizes care. Uh, I do. And, and you know, vocabulary is so 
critical. I, you know, I have a whole chapter on sort of how we talk and how that 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 confines us. But you know, it wasn't always so. You know, our earliest vocabulary was spiritual, mm-hmm. uh, and even today, Americans use many more uh, biblical references. At least Christian Americans uh, do than again you find in in many uh, uh, other societies. Uh, but much of our language for a long time, African American language, as certainly as well as white American. Uh, was more filled with references to faith than references to to money, so we don't. This is a phase. I mean, we don't have to to talk this way. But and I think millennials are actually um, focusing on meaning as much as money. I mean, when you ask younger people what they want in life, they will talk about feeling that they're working. Uh, at something that makes a difference, you know, feeling that they have a purpose. Uh, and that's, uh, I always say, you can be compensated with money and you can be compensated with meaning, and many of us uh, choose different balances there, that it it's, will take less money for more for more meaning. Uh, so one way to, to do that is, again, to ask people uh, and, and, and deliberately think about uh, well-being uh, and well-being then uh, typically is defined in relations to others we love, whether that's your biological family or your community or your set of friends. Uh, however, you want to construct a group of people with whom you have the kinds of close, loving relationships that really define us as being human. I mean, that's part of what it means to be human is to, to be in close relationships uh, with others. We We are having this conversation at a time in the United States where not just in the South and the former Confederacy, but across the land, uh, people are reckoning in awkward, sometimes painful ways with our history as a country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that reckoning takes forms that are sometimes seemingly symbolic about should we remove Confederate statues in New Orleans or take down a Confederate flag or should buildings at Princeton uh, uh, or at Yale or other universities no longer be named after people who were either you know, outright racists or slaveholders or worse. As we think about how we create a body of knowledge that all Americans should know about, that's both historical and uh, cultural, that's both about words, but also about symbols and images and icons, what is the place of now disfavored icons and symbols from, say, a Confederate uh, past? How do we honor the realities of this new America without... uh, uh, either skipping past or whitewashing or sugarcoating the uh, other parts of our national and cultural history. I have thought a great deal about this. I grew up in Charlottesville, uh, home of Thomas Jefferson, and I took a field trip to Monticello pretty much every single year in <laughs> elementary school. I used to laugh that I could give a tour of Monticello. And what's happened at Monticello, I think, is a very good example of how to come to grips with our history in a way that is much more honest, but frankly also uh, enriches the entire experience of learning our history. You know, when I was growing up, it was Thomas Jefferson, the great man, the Declaration of Independence, the founder of the University of Virginia, the author of the Declaration of Religious Sentiments. I mean, all, there, were, there were things about him that everybody learned. The cultural literacy of Thomas Jefferson was entirely white and entirely male and entirely uh, elite. And now, if you go to Monticello, 
at every turn you have a sign a sign that talks about Thomas Jefferson and his white family, but also the enslaved peoples, and explains to you that the the enslaved peoples uh, and focuses on enslaved people, not slaves. At every point, these are mm-hmm. these are people, and of course, he after his wife died, he had children with a slave woman who was the half sister of his wife because her father had slept with a slave woman and had this uh, Sally Hemings who uh, then he had children with. And you have to, in the first place, I would say cultural literacy today about Thomas Jefferson. Yes, you need to know he wrote the author of the, he was the author of the Declaration of Independence, but you ought to know who Sally Hemings is. And you ought to know that he didn't free his slaves uh, out of his death. So here's a man who wrote, all men are created equal, but, you know, himself had slaves and was racist in many ways uh, and was very ambivalent uh, about slavery. So that, that forces us to see what is good in our history. I mean, the Declaration of Independence is a grand document without being able to whitewash out the bad. And that, to me, is the human condition. That's what you get when you read a great novel, you know, or, or you see a great work of art. or it's, it's the inability to sort of have it be all good uh, or all bad. And the complexity, again, that I think if we, if we can embrace our history that way as a nation, we grow and, and we become stronger and richer. How do we encourage a conversation about our shared cultural inheritance, and again, what it is that we feel like every American should uh, should know about our inheritance, uh, in a way that is that is about shades of gray and that uh, rewards and honors this kind of complexity. Well, I think we start by listening and listening really hard. So I was also dean of the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, and that is you know the school uh, that now uh, many Princeton students. Uh, think should be renamed. And I do not think it should be renamed because I do think in the end Woodrow Wilson did more good than harm, although the the immediate response is, yeah, he did more good for white people, he did harm uh, to black people. Uh, we can have that debate. I think for all people in the end, he ultimately what he put in place outweighed the bad. But I don't think, I don't think that's a given. In other words, I think if I... If I if I say, oh, come on, of course we're not going to rename the Woodrow Wilson School, then I'm not surprised that uh, students feel or, or African Americans feel that they're just not being heard. And that then redoubles a kind of dialogue of the deaf where both sides start yelling. What I think we need to do is is honestly understand so what would it be like for me to be in a school by you know that was named for a raving misogynist you know a man who hated women right is how do how would i feel about that and would it affect me every day would i be able to say well yes he was a man of his times uh or he just was a man who did some great things but he hated women uh, i think we have to honestly start from a place that says maybe i'm wrong Maybe maybe we should change the name and then have the debate. Uh, and you, you know you may come out you may come out actually being persuaded that um, this is a much bigger problem than you thought it was. You may not, but you have to start with the willingness to be persuaded. Part of this um, 
dynamic that's unfolding in the country right now on all these kinds of issues is about listening and persuasion. Uh, And part of it as well is about contests for power. Everything is contested when we talk about, you know, a canon of cultural literacy or even a curated collection of uh, references that you think of in terms of cultural literacy. That's, of course, always contested. And my question for you, not only in the context of the specific instance of the Wilson School, but again, these broad debates right now over who is us and how do we define our shared common heritage, at what point do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable going from let's have the debate openly to let's have it out and see who can organize better and have a better and bring power politics to bear better? I mean, this is ultimately at the crux of the emergence of a new America, right? I mean, and and we've seen a lot of writing recently about, you know, a particular class of white men who are extremely angry, who have steadily lost power over the last uh, multiple decades, economic power, cultural power. Uh, And, you know, as new people, as you make room for, uh, new people, the people who used to be in, in those positions, uh, some, somebody does have to give way. So I agree that there's a, a big power dynamic. And I, you know, in the end, also the victors write history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we know that. Uh, and sometimes, and of course, we do get to see, we saw Mount McKinley renamed right this summer for Denali. Uh, and you, you, things do get renamed uh, and they do reflect history. Uh, think about the Soviet Union, Leningrad, right? St. Petersburg became Leningrad and became St. Petersburg again. Mm-hmm. So I, and I think that that's fair. I think in the context of renaming uh, things that are named for American presidents who come from an era uh, in which there was slavery or, or uh, very different racial attitudes, I would rather see that power deployed against what I see as far, far graver injustices. So I was talking to the dean of the Kennedy School, and they had a similar debate uh, at Harvard, I think, about Lowell House, about what naming, you know, all of our great universities, or at least the East Coast ones, the old ones, I have buildings named for people who were slaveholders, uh, mm-hmm. at least, uh, if not worse. And But the, what happened was that it turned into a conversation about racial justice, uh, about uh, po- police brutality against African Americans, uh, about students talking about being harassed on the streets, students of color getting picked up. Uh, but then because it was a school of public policy, others in the in the conversation having the ability to do something. And so if we're going to go to, you know, demonstrations and counter-demonstrations, like as in the 60s, you know, instead of taking over university administration buildings, demonstrate against the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. right? Demonstrate in ways, have a march on Washington. There, there, There is... Uh, racial injustice before our eyes that is simply horrifying. And I think a lot of the students uh, who are focusing on renaming things are really responding to this sense of, you know, seeing videos of of African-American children get shot or people shot in the back and and recognizing that, you know, 150 years after the Civil War, we, we still live in a deeply, deeply racially divided society. If you had a chance to add to a massive crowdsourced collective list like the one we're putting together, 
and, and you had a chance to just add your top 10 things, uh, what would they be? So I do start with the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> if, you're, if you're an American and you don't know that, I think there's a problem. <laughs> uh, and then the Gettysburg Address. Uh, and then the Declaration of Sentiments, which actually was at the Seneca Falls Convention, and it's exactly where where women use the language of the Declaration of Independence to claim their own power. So it starts, all men and women are created equal, uh, and that the history of mankind is a history of men and women. Uh, so that one for sure. And then Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, uh, and the dissent in the Korematsu case, the famous... Supreme Court case that actually upheld the internship, interning of Japanese during the Second World War, uh, but uh, the the wonderful dissent by Justice Robert Jackson uh, that is a, a, a again a powerful claim of equality uh, and liberty in the United States. So those are the five documents uh, I would use, and then I think um, sort of the five parts of American history or, or people that I think people should know. One is jazz mm. and understand that jazz is this extraordinary, hybrid, vibrant, ever-changing musical form that I think is uh, sort of emblematic of America at its best. Uh, one is the Gilded Age uh, and the, the at the end of the 19th century. One is the Trail of Tears, uh, the uh, trail of the, of the Cherokees, uh, and really the destruction of Native American life. Uh, one is Sojourner Truth uh, and the tremendous power of a, a slave woman. And the final one is the Dust Bowl uh, and understanding what the Great Depression was, but also it's not just the depression of human beings, but the destruction of the land. Anne-Marie, thanks again for joining us uh, and look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. That's Princeton professor and president of New America, Anne-Marie Slaughter, speaking with Eric Liu of the Aspen Institute. Liu also spoke with Jose Antonio Vargas, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and one of the country's best-known undocumented activists. Vargas co-founded the organization Define American and recently made a film for MTV called White People. Later, we'll hear Vargas's top 10 list. But first, Liu asks him about his view of cultural literacy. It, it has a certain kind of resonance because I've been traveling nonstop for the past four and a half years, right? I'm at Define American. I've probably done more than 450 events in 40 states, probably, and I think 250 college campuses so far. And what I've really realized is there is no, that we are not on the same page <laughs> when we talk about America. There seems to be a real disconnect and a real um, sense of confusion. Um, what I mean by that is just some, some basic history, for example, how people in this country become citizens, right? Mm -hmm. Just that process, right? You know, yeah, we are a country of immigrants, but you can't talk about that without addressing, you know, the forced migration of, you know, African slaves, and you can't talk about that without addressing Native Americans in this country. I think cultural literacy is I actually, for me, in, in this era of you believe what you want to believe, I think it's what's lost. You know, people seek information, hmm. not for information's sake, but seek information that validates what they already think. And I think that's kind of really, you know, that's, that, that's dangerous. 
you're bringing up uh, actually one of your next projects, um, something called Emerging U.S., which is really trying to use the media in a way to uh, uh, break out of this birds of a feather flocking together only to validate their prior understandings of what American life is, uh, to create a different, more inclusive conversation about who we are. Describe a bit what this emerging U.S. project is going to be and what you think generally the role of the media is in advancing cultural literacy. Well, I mean, I actually think we are where we are right now because the media isn't doing what it's supposed to do, which is not only to inform us, but to connect us, Hmm. right? So much of it is conflict-driven. So much of it is about telling us what's wrong with us (laughs) and, and why we should be against each other, right? Um, and, and, and in this kind of a vacuum, this is why Donald Trump succeeds, right, in terms of, you know, I mean, whatever you may believe in Donald Trump, like how he's navigated the media or the failures of the media has been nothing short of masterful, right? Um, so for me, Emerging Us, I like to think of it as a corrective, a corrective and a, and a connection, Um Again, traveling all across the country, talking to Tea Party members, talking to Republicans. You know, as a journalist, I feel like there is no um, there is no one that I can't really talk to. I think it's my job to talk to people and try to figure out why they think what they think. Right? I care less about what you say, and I care more about why you say what you say. How did you get there? Hmm. I think this this idea of cultural literacy it informs why people are where they are in many kind of academic environments, this whole notion of white privilege, right, is a very relevant topic. Try talking about white privilege to working class people in Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, who live in trailer park homes, who feel that the the influx of Latinos and Asians in Arkansas, you know, may benefit Walmart because more people are shopping at Walmart, but it's not benefiting them, mm-hmm. you know, because they're still in the trailer park. The challenge you've taken on of taking on subjects like White privilege, which, of course, as you say, in academic circles and on campuses, um, there's lots of conversation about that. But when you go to um, places uh, uh, like you've described um, and have that conversation with uh, white working class people who aren't familiar with the academic concept, but certainly don't in their everyday lives um, of economic struggle and uh, and feeling like they're falling behind, certainly don't feel like they're experiencing anything like white privilege how do you as a journalist open up that conversation uh, in a way that um, uh, allows them to expand their conception of what American history is to include a notion of white privilege? How do you get past the uh, not only the defensiveness, but the simple disbelief that there even, is even such a thing? I mean, the first thing I really do is I just listen a lot. I try to understand, again, like how people got to that point of view. You know, is it because they lost their job 15 years ago or they can't send their kids to school or the manufacturing plant closed, you know, a decade ago and since then nothing has ever been the same? Or that, you know, there's not as many kids wanting to play football after school and they want to play soccer. So I kind of start with that, with this idea of, you know, what has been the disruption? And then I kind of try to make it back and try to explain how I got here, right? Um, you know, immigrating from the Philippines, sent here by my mom. Why did, why, you know, why did my mom have to do that? Like, you know, what parent wants to put her or her son on a plane, right, to just give him a better life? Like, why is that? And then all of a sudden, we have kind of a common ground, which is about, it's the American dream, 
right? Like you, your parents want you to do than what they did, right? So I try to figure out where I can find that common ground. Sometimes I, sometimes we don't find it, but I'm actually surprised that oftentimes we do. And then all of a sudden, there's the same vocabulary. When you have opened up those kinds of conversations that are on the more human level, and you described having, you know, found then some, as you put it, common vocabulary, whether it's about the American dream or other dimensions of American aspiration, break that down. What's in that common vocabulary that you and tea partiers and, um, you know, Walmart employees and others uh, um, can all find in common and share in common? That we want America to work for us. Not only do we want America to work for us, but that we want to work for an America that's better. You've described how you, as a very compassionate uh, and uh, fearless uh, and enterprising journalist, uh, meeting with people who may think like you, who may not think like you, how you, by listening with uh, an open heart and compassion, uh, can crack open these conversations at, at a greater scale uh, than one person. Yeah. Um, how can we get our institutions to start fostering more inclusive conversations, again, about our shared inheritance? I mean, I think it's a fundamental change in how we tell stories, hmm. right? I mean, this is where I've been, okay, this is the craziness for me in the past year, has been rereading a lot of Marshall McLuhan. But trying to understand what the medium of television has really done to discourse. We are now moving in a space where, you know, I mean, to my 15-year-old nephew, you know, everything is just on their phone, right? Like, whether or not it's a television show or an or a podcast or a YouTube video, they don't care. It's on their phone, right? So now that we're heading into that direction, what are the new norms that should be built? Those are the questions I'm kind of asking myself because I feel as if the the polarization of our culture and of our politics has had a lot to do with how people get the information and how the information is framed to them. Very adversarial, very conflict-driven. It's almost as if everything is so distilled in this very oversimplified funnel. You know, I mean, I mean, as, you know, as, as, as people of color, right? I mean, I always feel as if, oh, you know, there's the Latino story, there's the black story, there's the gay story, there's the immigrant story. Well, what happens when all those stories intersect? When E.D. Hirsch wrote his book, Cultural Literacy, it was famous for its appendix of 5,000 things every American should know, this catalog of facts and dates and cultural references and historical names and so forth. Um, And in ways that I think he never intended, that list got swept up in the culture wars of the late 80s and early 90s and uh, raised this question, which reverberates still today, uh, which is about who gets included and who doesn't get included. And and sometimes, yeah. you know, when you have uh, people say, well, on that list ought to be things like the Trail of Tears or ought to be things like the colonization of the Philippines or ought to be things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, a, a common refrain and response is, um, oh boy, you're going down the road of every group having its own little uh, bucket of history, every group getting to tell its story. And and that's a that's a line of argument that comes often from uh, conservatives. I find it interesting to hear you observe it as well, that the not as a conservative or liberal thing, but just in the dynamics of how the media operates, that it likes to separate us into little buckets and 
uh, and so that there is a Latino story and an Asian story and a gay story and so forth. So how do we transcend those buckets? How do we actually weave an intersecting uh, story of all of us? Well, I actually think that's the challenge and the opportunity of America, right? That it really tests this whole idea of what freedom looks like and what freedom is. And that means that there's that room for everybody to have, I don't want to call it their version of history, but something that fulfills the way they see themselves and the way they're represented in this country, right? Like, of course, we all should know about the Declaration of Independence, you know, and the Bill of Rights. I mean, I think for me, like, I remember when I first heard about America, you know, when I first studied American history, just the history of the Trail of Tears and, and, and what, you know, Native indigenous people in this country have had to go through, right? For me, it was always such an interesting part of history that I almost feel as if, as I got older, I, I gravitated more and more towards because I wasn't told about it early enough, I felt, mm-hmm. right? And, and there's a propensity, I think, for people to say that acknowledging this history means criticizing America. <laughs> and I find that really interesting because I, I have always felt that in the way that this country was founded, right, that this country was founded on criticism, hmm. of criticism of what we, of what people in this country, the call, you know, the colonizers thought were unjust, taxation without representation. So if this country was, and mind you, when I say that, I'm not even talking about, you know, the Native American experience, right? I'm talking about like what we know. What I started learning by sixth grade right, the Boston Tea Party, what I said, this country was founded on criticism. So therefore, it is incumbent upon us to the, the very definition of patriotism should be questioning this country, because that, to me, is the highest ideal of freedom. When we talk about what every American should know, and we talk about this, this list, which no longer has to be one guy's list of 5,000 items, but it can be a crowdsourced general list that we as a society in perpetuity are ever revising. But when you think about what ought to be in that list, you've been you've been waging a very uh, persistent fight just to get people in journalism, the media, uh, much less other citizens, to stop saying illegals and illegal immigrants yeah. and instead to say undocumented, undocumented persons. Um, it seems to me that one of the things you'd like to see um, every American know and have on that list is simply the word and the idea undocumented and why that's different from and in your view, better than um, illegal. Uh, say a word about that and about that, that fight that you've been waging. And I'm talking about somebody who's been, you know, obsessed about getting a driver's license and getting a green card since I got to this country when I was, you know, and realized I was here illegally. To me, being undocumented means not having these pieces of papers, right? Which, again, very much puts into question, is American citizenship then nothing but pieces of papers? Is that what makes someone an American? So I think undocumented is a much more fitting term, especially given that this country was founded in many ways on the printed word. That's why for us, you know, undocumented makes the more sense, certainly the more human sense, right? And it's been really interesting because even in this presidential campaign, you know, like the language that people use, that the politicians are using, you know, is very indicative of the policies that they have and how humane these policies are. So uh, what I've been asking a lot of presidential candidates, we have a campaign within Define American called Words Matter, and we're really, you know, about to ratchet that up in the next few months leading into the presidential election. 
is when our news media use illegals and illegal and legal aliens, are they then siding with certain parts of the electorate? Are they then siding with Donald Trump and the Ted Cruz? Is that what they're doing? Because the media likes to say that they're objective, that they're trying to remain neutral. Well, if they're using the word that certain candidates are using, then are they being neutral? So one of the things that um, we we have been doing in this uh, uh, project is inviting people to submit not a list of 5,000 things, but just a top 10, 10 things that you think every American should know. And they can be historical, cultural, political references. Yeah. Uh, and so, Jose, I'd like to, in, in the uh, last few minutes we have here for this conversation, um, ask what uh, what's on your list? Uh, what, what are 10 things you think every American should know? Undocumented, as you suggested, is definitely on my list. Um, white man's burden is definitely on my list. Um, that's why the Philippines was taken over by the United States. For me, I would certainly put um, The Fire Next Time, um, which is a book by James Baldwin. And for me, James Baldwin is always, has always insisted on America to look, to look at the other in America in a different way. I think the Declaration of Sentiments at Seneca Falls um, I remember reading that when I was in high school. I think that would definitely be. I mean, you cannot be living in America right now and not be a feminist. I think that's an important and very, very worthy fight. Given where we are right now, I think this whole idea of meritocracy, hmm. the very question of meritocracy, I think that would be that would be on my list. Given that I've been traveling so much in this country, and I think a lot of the Tea Party members that I've met you know, have been so misrepresented in the media, I would probably put Tea Party hmm. in the, on the list as well. I now do believe, having done my own reporting on it, that that is its own political revolution. And it's something that we really should understand better because it has, you know, very legitimate claims and arguments to make. Well, one of the things that is so um, rich about your list is the way in which it bounces back and forth between history and the present day, uh, but also the ways in which it reverberates between those two poles you were describing earlier in the context of patriotism, which is, um, you know, critique and celebration, right? Um, Or to put it a different way, that a very valid, indeed, perhaps the most valid way to celebrate uh, the idea of this nation is to critique it. Uh, And and so what's on your list is uh, really an interesting fusion uh, of those ideas, Jose. Um, I, I just want to thank you for um, joining us for this conversation and for the work you're doing. Oh, I, I, I have to say, by the way, again, having, having done all the traveling, I cannot, this is such an incredibly essential time to have this conversation about cultural literacy. So I'm just happy to be a part of it. And thank you for leading it, Eric. That's Jose Antonio Vargas speaking with Eric Liu. Vargas is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and immigration rights advocate. Lou leads the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. Lou's program is creating a new list of cultural terms with crowdsourced input. It's inspired by an original list compiled in the book Cultural Literacy, written by longtime professor and intellectual E.D. Don Hirsch. Here's Lou and Hirsch. What was the feeling you had when this argument that you were making and the appendix that you put out there became this uh, mega social phenomenon. Everybody was surprised. I mean, the the publisher had printed 10,000 copies and, of course, ran out of uh, 
print version. This was pre-Kindle, and and they ran out of books after week two of the <laughs> announcement of the book being published. So that was a crisis for them. And, of course, it always has irked me that... Uh, because if you miss that that interest, when when people really want to get hold of that book, um, you don't sell as many copies. So anyway, I sold plenty of copies. You, 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 you did all right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, p- part of why you did all right, and part of what made this a phenomenon, was of course that it landed smack in the uh, middle of this early phase of what uh, started to be known as the culture wars. That's right. With my book, which was a pretty sober. A scholarly book, basically, um, it took us all by surprise. Your intentions in in crafting this argument and putting this book out there, your intentions were, in a sense, uh, inclusive. I, I might even say, although the word has a slightly different valence today, progressive. It was about trying to fold more and more people um, into the circle of this language of power and this cultural and civic mainstream. That's absolutely the way to put it, because it was my feeling that that was the basic aim of democratic education. Uh, but what, but what at, at the time, instead, uh, your book was both celebrated by some on the right and attacked by some on the left for being um, something other than inclusive and, uh, and progressive. And, and you got lumped in, uh, as I would later write, uh, unfairly into this category of people who were described as reactionary, Eurocentrist, uh, you know, worshippers of dead white men even though your list of 5,000 references and facts was pretty heavy on the words and deeds and uh, lives of, uh, of plenty of dead white men, that certainly wasn't where you'd been coming from. Uh, today, how do you make the case today for both the book you wrote in 1987 and for the broader endeavors that you've built off that book to expand this notion of inclusive cultural literacy? Right. Well, I think one way to get at it, the, the, obviously the, the cognitive science that went into the book uh, is, is become ever more established and is just as valid now as, as when I wrote the book. And it's basically what, you, what I think one can safely say is correct, uh, namely that uh, to communicate in the public sphere uh, you have to have a lot of relevant knowledge uh, that isn't in the communicative act itself, in the words themselves. You can't understand it and you can't talk and listen to other people and meet strangers effectively, uh, and particularly you can't address uh, large groups, um, unless you have that background knowledge uh, and another way to put it, unless you have that rather large vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that point is extremely well established and uh, is true. So, so uh, my feeling now is that the way to talk about this is no longer to use uh, the word culture except as a last resort, because actually uh, this vocabulary can sustain multiple cultures, hmm. uh, really. I mean, they don't define uh, the culture by themselves. The, 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 this, this knowledge base, it's really obviously a vocabulary, is, is correlative to, to knowledge. You, if you, you have to know the thing if you know the word. And so 
it's really it's, it was really directed towards elementary education and uh, uh, schooling rather rather than through the larger sphere of culture and cultural change. Well, you know, so that... I had a I had a more narrow uh, view of supporting this idea. Really, it's interesting to hear you say that uh, in some ways it might be more helpful today to think in terms of vocabulary rather than culture, and that's partly because the idea of culture itself or multiculturalism or multitudes of cultures carries with it its own set of schema and, and, and if you want to say, baggage uh, that people carry when they, when they hear the phrase. But when you think about vocabulary, you mean, of course, larger than simply the actual uh, content of words in Webster's Dictionary. You mean this broad set of patterns, references, memes, even images and icons that, uh, that are part of a um, in a capaciously defined vocabulary. Well, uh, that's right. But but the way humans reach those icons uh, and things out in the world is through words. Mm-hmm. And the, the the trick is not to think of words as just uh, common words, but also include proper nouns. Um, I think that that was one of the difficulties, of course, because if you look at uh, the old cultural literacy list, you'll find uh, that <clears throat> they're mostly referring to uh, particulars, uh, groups of words that refer to particular things or events which constitute a, a phrasal word, so to speak, and and also a lot of proper names. You know, this project that we're running out of uh, uh, my program at the Aspen Institute on what every American should know is itself motivated by a belief, number one, that you were right in 1987 that a diverse country needs a shared set of common knowledge, a a, a shared set of references that constitute background knowledge that across all our different lines of diversity um, we can use to understand one another. Uh, But number two, that it's time uh, for us uh, to, you know, in a living document kind of way, ensure that that sense of that vocabulary uh, is as inclusive and updated and diverse as not only America is uh, in the 21st century, but as diverse as America always was, but often wasn't recognized uh, right. uh, as such. It, it, that was that was in the subscript and the footnotes and even the explicit statements of my uh, original book, as you well know. But but that got lost in the shuffle, didn't mm-hmm. it? It is not a static vocabulary. And yet, Eric, I would be very curious in how it actually worked out, because if you just check on the uh, the new edition of Webster's, say, there's less than a, over 10 years, even with the rapidly moving times, it only had about 1% of, of new entries in uh, a decade. Well, So I'm not clear that it changes fast because mm-hmm. it's a vast uh, popular <laughs> it's a vast group of people that mm-hmm. uh, that are involved uh, it is interesting that there is a um, there's a slow time and a fast time right there, there, there is a slow metabolism of the underlying vocabulary that some of which you can capture in a dictionary and some of which you can capture in a history or a civics textbook and then there's the faster metabolism of popular culture of political culture and civic culture in, in the course of a year or a decade or a generation, you know, I would probably bet money today that uh, before long, Black Lives Matter, just as a phrase, will work its way into dictionaries and, and documents that uh, are, are meant to capture something oh, lasting. Uh, absolutely. 
One of the interesting things, uh, Don, just about the the invitation that we've cast uh, widely, just to create uh, their own top ten lists. What, what are ten things uh, that that each person in this country presented with this topic thinks that every American ought to know? And um, as thousands and thousands of those entries have been coming in um, in this rather unscientific but still crowdsourced way, it's been interesting to note some of the things that are rising to the top that are not. You know, they're not brand new concepts, but they are things that have been more on the margins than rather at the center. Right. Um, Can uh, I, could you could you clue me in a little? Or? Well, things like the Trail of Tears. Uh, yes. Now, there's there's an interesting example. Now, I'm, I can't remember whether <laughs> you're talking to an old man here. It, it, it was Andrew Jackson involved a, a bit with that particular cruelty to the Indians. Or? Uh, yes. I mean, that was uh, the Trail yeah. of Tears in particular was the. Uh, the, the Cherokees going going from yeah. the you know the Gulf South uh, ultimately to what's now Oklahoma and um, right. uh, among other forced migrations of course right? yeah and and of course the reason that's rising to the top is is a general sentiment of that the, of the forgotten and the downtrodden mm-hmm. that people have been left out of history of course that that started in the his, among historians even before it got into the cultural mm-hmm. movement the idea of uh, of, of uh, history from below, as it's called, and uh, and 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 every the the end. But of course, the reason it's gotten to be so conflicted is that it then becomes a a political polarization between the left mm-hmm. and the right, with the left standing for the downtrodden and the and the right standing for the status quo. I want to actually close this conversation uh, to hear from you about what your top ten. Uh, would be if I, you know, if I if I force you into the exercise of uh, uh, adding to this crowdsource list. Uh, um, well, well, I don't know how it's been coming in recently, but with the death of Scalia and the um, standoff between uh, the Congress and the president, obviously that, that that's typical of how the present colors what we think. That's your your illustration of Black Lives Matter. So my number one item, I think, would be a government of laws, not of men. Mm. And uh, I, one feels that that phrase about the polarization and the uh, inter-parties, where you pay more attention to uh, your own skin and, and to your own group than you do to the good of the country as a whole. Uh, what else is on your list? I would put in George Washington. Let's say George Washington. I put George Washington instead of the way up at the top instead of the uh, trail of tears because George Washington is saying something about the ideals of the country mm-hmm. and and the trail of tears is saying the bad things we did and which we need to atone for and do better. There's another reason I put that close to the top and that would be emphasizing that these proper names, these names of people, are very important in one's being able to to deal in the public sphere. You mm-hmm. need to allude to Darwin. He should be there. Mm-hmm. Einstein should be there. Mm-hmm. The Revolutionary War needs to be there, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it, if you're dealing with this topic, it's hard to have a kind of uh, top ten that isn't so totally arbitrary and eccentric and and probably time-governed. So <laughs> I, I'm looking at it from not, not just my personal view of the thing, but also as a question of 
what should the schools do? Yes, you are looking at it as a citizen with a sense of responsibility that's beyond just you expressing your own uh, preferences and uh, and opinion. And uh, right, Don Hirsch, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, for joining me in this conversation today. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure to talk to you again. That's E.D. Don Hirsch, who wrote Cultural Literacy, a controversial book released in 1987 that lists 5,000 facts and cultural references every American should know. The Citizenship and American Identity Program invites you to participate in the creation of a new list. Submit the top 10 items you think every American should know to be civically and culturally literate at whateveryamericanshouldknow.org. In the coming months on the podcast, we'll feature more ideas from top American thinkers about cultural literacy. Discover more about the Aspen Institute at aspeninstitute.org. Follow the Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas to Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.